The Lord be with you. Welcome to episode number one of season two of Suspended in the Word. If you're new to the Suspended Enterprise, this is a weekly podcast aimed at plumbing the mysteries of the Christian faith, principally that mystery which we call the Incarnation, whereby the eternal Word, which was with God from eternity and is God eternally, went forth from the mind of God and entered into creation, adventured, if you like, into time and space. The Word became flesh, we hear, as real as yours and mine, if not more, and dwelt among us. Yes, everything came into existence through this very Word, and then the Word came and pitched its tent in the midst of all it had made. What's more, we know this Word, personally. Of those listening to this podcast, I suspect there are a slim few who have not at least heard the name Jesus, the Christ. But do we understand the astonishing grandeur of this mystery, wherein God becomes one with creation, so that creation may in turn become one with God? Such a mystery needs ample time and space to be unraveled, which is fortunate for us. Season 2 of Suspended in the Word embarks on year C of the Sunday lectionary. Thus, we travel together, slowly traversing Sunday after Sunday, so as to bridge that time throughout each week and across the coming year. With each episode, may the grace of the former Sunday push us through to the next, which we would approach always with anticipation and with joy. And so, as we do, let us make another leg of the race and run it well from Sunday to Sunday, going from strength to strength and receiving grace upon grace. Last Sunday was the final celebration in year B of the Sunday lectionary. If you're listening to this podcast, you may be familiar with the lectionary and how it is used in liturgical worship, but to loosely define what it is, a lectionary is a book, or even a list in some cases I'm told, which has portions of the scriptures organized within it and then appointed for proclamation at a given service, on a given date, etc. And I think it's worth highlighting the word appointed. Not all Christian traditions use a lectionary in their services. In some church communities, it is up to the pastor to prayerfully decide what his or her flock needs to hear, what God desires to speak to them in a particular moment. And the pastor certainly is responsible for this. From my conversations with Christian friends, I've gleaned a sense that there's a great liberty in this, the freedom to choose what scriptures will be unpacked whenever the community gathers. The pastor can plan themes to explore, or can respond very explicitly to the current affairs, and so on. This is a gift, but as with all gifts and liberties, it brings its own anxiety, for it is difficult to know for sure that we're using the gifts and liberties we've received perfectly. What if the pastor unknowingly moves in an increasingly narrow direction? What if there are scriptures that are knowingly or unknowingly being avoided? What if there are unforeseeable occasions when the emotions of the pastor are being affected and the service is changed to accommodate this? Of course, there are many things that can be done to mitigate such pitfalls. The associate pastor or the elders of the community can meet regularly to keep a level of accountability. But I have been given the impression from some 
that a lectionary would be a happy help in keeping things a lot more objective, so that nothing which ought to be covered is neglected. Scriptural interpretation is safeguarded from accidental tunnel vision, and even the naturally fluctuating psychological state of the one planning the service does not compromise in any way the service being planned. As someone who has grown up in a church which uses the lectionary in its worship, I suppose I can envy the freedom that other Christian churches have at times. But there is always time for additional exploration of the scriptures. And the Mass is by no means a Bible study session. For that matter, the point of the lectionary is not really to cover the Bible in a given period of time. It might be more correct to say the lectionary allows a community of faith to make a consistent and coherent pilgrimage through the Word of God into the mysteries of the faith they hold and are committed to living out in the world. Mysteries, by definition, need time and space to unravel. Mysteries are deep. You cannot learn the meaning of a mystery in a single sitting. You can glimpse it, perhaps. But the exciting thing about a mystery is that every time you reach into it, you realize it is deeper than it was before. Every sincere gaze on the mystery reveals more of you and more of the world around you. The mystery somehow comes to envelop reality itself. Since the Christian faith holds certain mysteries at its core, at its center, it is a gift to have a consistent and coherent way to gaze at them from every direction, to enter them from every angle, slowly making the rounds again and again, each time pressing further in, always drilling deeper, and discovering therein a wondrous color and depth and vibrancy to the whole of life. We need the time and space to immerse ourselves as completely and profoundly as we would like. The lecture affords us the appropriate time, space, structure and sensibility to do this. For Catholics in the Latin Rite, there is a Sunday lectionary which has a three-year cycle. Years A, B and C. We've just concluded year B which gradually presents us with St. Mark's account of the Gospel, the life of Jesus. We're now moving into year C, which presents readings from St. Luke's account. And this time next year, we will have reached the end of year C and will recommence again year A to take us through to December of 2023. And that will show us the life of Jesus through the eyes of St. Matthew. So, year A is Matthew, Year B is Mark, and Year C, where we are now at the beginning of Season 2, is Luke. Naturally, because Matthew and Luke are larger works, more of Matthew and Luke's accounts don't make it into the Sunday lectionary. But this is okay, for the same reason that the whole of the Bible is not portioned out across the lectionary either. The intent is not piecemealing large texts for easy consumption. That would be important if this were Bible study, but it's not. It's liturgical worship, and the intent is making a pilgrimage. You may be thinking, shouldn't there be a year D for the fourth gospel? What happens to the gospel according to St. John? That's a good question. As we said, Matthew and Luke are the longer gospel accounts. 
By some counts, Matthew's Gospel has around 18,300 words and might take up to three hours to read in a single sitting. Luke has about a thousand more, taking about the same time to read. Mark is closer to 11,300 words in length and could be comfortably read in a single 90-minute sitting. And finally, John is somewhere in the middle, just over 15,600 words, just shy of two hours reading. These first three though, Matthew, Mark and Luke, are known as the Synoptic Gospels. Syn, as in synonym, a word which has the same or similar meaning as does another, a word which is for the most part interchangeable with another, and optic, as in optic nerve. I'd love to draw an illustration here from the literal etymology of the word. The optic nerve is the means by which visuals are received by the eye and passed back as visual information from the retina through the optic tracts transmitted as electrical impulses to the visual cortex of the brain. Now humans have two eyes. Before the images received by my left and right eye respectively go to the brain, they meet in the optic chasm. That is to say, one image meets another not at the point I encounter the visual stimuli and not once it has gone to the visual cortex, but precisely in the middle halfway between my eyes and the visual cortex of my brain, where those two optic nerves cross over each other and the left and right image interact. I think this is a superb way of understanding how the synoptic gospel accounts work. We have Matthew, Mark and Luke, these three eyes which each receive a privileged view of Jesus. That information is then collected in some fashion and passed back through the tracts of community, worship, tradition and so on, thereby crossing over each other before entering a place inside us which comprehends what has been seen and with considerable depth perception as well. This is a good reason why we don't just blend all of the accounts of Jesus into one, smooshing Matthew, Mark, Luke and John into a single gospel filing back all the uncomfortable edges and diverse images received and thus reducing our view of Jesus into a plain, flat, lifeless one that has no mystery to it and which so easily leads to a boorish fundamentalism. This runs the risk of becoming an idolatry that prefers a Christ who does nothing to challenge understanding and who can be folded away once he said exactly what I expected. Rather than the true Christ, who isn't just words on a page, but the word of spirit and truth, and fleshed and never to pass away. The church retains for her faithful the accounts of Matthew, Mark and Luke, this triune syndicate of eyes, so that we can see Jesus in the scriptures without robbing him of his life and depth. But then there's John's account. And we might say that John is not just another eye to be synthesized with the others. It would be a mistake in a way to treat John as interchangeable with Matthew, Mark or Luke in the same way that they are somewhat interchangeable with each other. John's view of Jesus seeks to penetrate deeper than the depth any number of human eyes can detect. He looks to Jesus with the hopes of seeing eternity 
and the God who precedes even that. And he sees it. John looks to Jesus with the mind's eye, fixing an insatiable, intuitive gaze, a kind of searching, dreaming genius. John's gospel is simply different. So there is no year D. Instead, specific portions of John feature in years A, B, and C, such as during the seasons of Lent and Easter, as well as on other certain feast days. Finally, alongside this Sunday lectionary, which has its three-year cycle, there is another lectionary to cater for the liturgies on every other day, that is from Monday through to Saturday, there is a weekday lectionary with a two-year cycle, year one and year two, or cycle one and cycle two. And to make things easy for us, the church has been kind enough to make cycle one the years ending in an odd number, and cycle two those ending in an even number. That means 2021 has been cycle one for weekdays, but the liturgical year doesn't begin on the 1st of January. It begins with the season of Advent. And so as of Monday, the 29th of November, 2021, we will begin cycle two of the weekday lectionary. Congratulations. You can now claim an honorary PhD in the Roman Catholic lectionaries, (laughs) if only. There's a reason I said I'd give a loose definition rather than a concise one. While we're on the topic of broad liturgical themes, it might be worth noting the different liturgical colours displayed throughout the year. These colours make up part of the rich symbolic language of the church. If you were to inspect a liturgical calendar, say from 2021 to 22, you would notice that we have just wrapped up a sizable period of green. Yes, aside from a splutter of red and white here and there, We have draped our altars, ambos, and clergy with green since the 25th of May, the day after Pentecost. Green signifies what the church calls ordinary time. That is to say, it is not Lent, Easter, Advent, or Christmas. But this is a poor way to define ordinary time. Such a definition only helps to consolidate the mistaken impression people sometimes have That green means we're back into the boring, old, uneventful, ordinary time. There's nothing of note, just the humdrum of daily life. Well, it's true that life has its mellow periods. In our own lives, we can recognize times when the extravagant is held in our memory, like a wonderful party just gone, or is on the horizon, like a special outing we're looking forward to but is not in fact being experienced in the present. The same is true liturgically. Those most pivotal moments in the year, namely Christmas and Easter, are implicitly remembered and anticipated at all times, but they're not explicitly celebrated in the time that is green. But surely the very color chosen for ordinary time should give us a hint to the season's innate vibrancy. If it were really meant to be considered boring time, the church would have done better to settle on beige or grey. But that's not what we see. Instead, we see these great expanses of green, 
like the lush, grassy, cascading hills, with flocks of sheep strewn across it, all the way into the sunset, peacefully grazing. Or think of the flourishing rainforest with its thick, tall, jungle-like growth, the crown cover overhead blocking out the sun, warmth breathing through and gently baking the damp air with its fresh, sappy fragrance, and causing all the chattering birdsong to ring out in joyful symphony. This isn't boring at all. It's gloriously alive. And personally, I feel the simple yet indestructible grandeur of ordinary time might be most evident on that day after Pentecost Sunday. Allow me to explain. The seasons of Advent and Lent are both marked by the liturgical colour violet, signifying, among other things, preparation, and in that, perhaps a certain heightened spirit of humility and penitence. Note, the sacrament of reconciliation or confession has the priest wear a violet stole, regardless of what season it happens to be when he hears the confession. For the same reason, it is a time. Not a season, of course, but a pocket of time wide enough to warrant a violet stole. And just like the seasons of Lent and Advent, that small pocket is a precious time dedicated to preparation and a heightened spirit of humility and penitence. Advent, the season we're now embarking on, means approximately four weeks of preparation preceding Christmas, with a flash of rose on Gaudete Sunday, amidst the violet of the rest of that season. Come Christmas, the liturgical colour is white, and Christmas isn't over in a day, as we explored in episode one of season one. Christmas is a season as well, spanning 12 jubilant days and starting with an octave. This means that the church considers Christmas Day as being so magnificent that it runs over the edges all the way until the eighth day. Christmas Day takes eight days, and the season of Christmas time goes from the 25th of December all the way through to the Epiphany on the 6th of January. We then take off our white and put on our green. It's a new year with a newborn in our recent memory to give us that childlike joy which knows nothing of stress and fatigue, shame or any of the other dust that can tend to collect and weigh us down over time. Eventually we come to Ash Wednesday where we might say the dust and ash of this life is at its full and thus begins Lent, a 40-day season of humble penitential preparation leading to Easter Sunday. Lent is violet with a flash of rose on Letare Sunday. And Easter is white. Another octave ensues from Easter Sunday, and the season of Eastertide stretches for 50 days. Finally, we have Pentecost. Is Pentecost a small feast? The official ranking of Pentecost is that of a first-class Sunday a Sunday of the highest importance, alongside Easter, Christmas, the Sundays of Advent, and those of Passion Time from the fifth Sunday of Lent through Holy Week, and some other days. Sometimes we will see a certain feast day celebrated on a Sunday, like the feast of a parish's patron saint, 
or a day of particular significance to a diocese or religious community. In Australia, the Solemnity of Mary MacKillop was such a feast that took place on a Sunday just this year. But no feast will ever take the place of these first-class Sundays. It would simply trample underfoot the church's logic of reverence. What exactly are we celebrating if we don't hold these particular days as most worthy of celebration? Beyond the official codes, though, the question somehow lingers. Should we consider Pentecost more like one of those Sundays in Advent rather than Christmas and Easter, which each receive an octave? This would be hard to take, I think. Before his passion, Jesus told his disciples that he must go away. But it is for their benefit that he goes, because if he doesn't, he can't send the one he calls the Advocate, the Comforter, He couldn't go and draw in again that breath that he and the Father share, that living and life-giving breath who was with God from eternity and is God eternally, the Holy Spirit. If Jesus says it is for our benefit that he goes, it seems that the coming of the Holy Spirit is something very magnificent indeed, similar one would think to the coming of Christ in Christmas. And Jesus did in fact send that Spirit to his fellowship whereby their mission was set aflame. They went out like an inferno of divine love. Pentecost is often called the birthday of the church, and the color of that solemn feast is red. So why, since its magnificence is so plain to see, is there no octave at Pentecost as at Christmas and Easter, and no season of Pentecost as with Christmastide and Eastertide? There was a time when Pentecost had what was called a specially privileged octave. In fact, from the 4th century up until quite recently, Pentecost was celebrated with an octave. Why does it now suddenly flip from red back to green? I submit this thought not as anything official, but only as something which satisfies my own reflection on the question. Could it be that the church is subtly communicating something quite surprising and sublime. Perhaps Pentecost needs no octave and no season before everything goes back to the ordinary. Maybe Pentecost is not to be like Christmas and Easter, which are celebrated for a fortunate time and then left behind, as it were, merely remembered and anticipated until we return to them again in due season. No, Maybe Pentecost is in fact entirely unique in this unspoken respect. There is no season to come and go. There is only a permanent transformation from which there is no coming back. There is no returning. We flip straight back to green the next day because in truth there is no point at which we would take down the red of Pentecost. The world's been changed. Time and space are no longer chaotic and random, but ordered with a life in the spirit as the new normal. Pentecost is the new ordinary. The green thinly veils the ocean of blazing red that has permanently marked all we have and all we are. It is to our benefit that we can move in and out of those seasons of Christ's birth, passion and resurrection. And it is to our great benefit that the coming of the Holy Spirit is no such passing season. At no point now that the church has been born 
Should the Holy Spirit's presence with us be merely implicit, something memorable or awaited? Even when he went into the desert for his temptation, Jesus had the Spirit with him, for it led and drove him. When, if ever, was the Holy Spirit not with the Lord Jesus? That's an interesting question, which we might revisit another time. But as for us, we are never to leave the Holy Spirit by the wayside, nor will that Spirit, the same which hovered over the waters at creation, ever leave us, not even at the end of time. Our daily anthem through every season of every age is Veni Sancte Spiritus. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful. And that ever-present Lord will never delay, but will allow us to continue by ringing out for the world to hear, Abba, Father, and stir prayers in us too deep for words. We have a constant friend, and if ever we forget, there is the red flash of Pentecost Sunday. May that redden the green and bury its mystery in the midst of our most ordinary of times, even in the very heart of the mess and the humdrum we've all come to know. All that for another season. We're coming now to Advent. That might be enough of glancing and poking around the liturgy for the time being. As we said, the year closed with us gathered in an eternal kingdom and hailing our eternal king. Is there any other kingdom we would prefer or any other king we would rather bend the knee to? Thus ended the Sundays of year B with Jesus telling Pilate about the truth he's dying for us to know. In our sights, then, is the first Sunday of Advent and of a new year. I'm always curious to see the overarching shapes drawn by the lectionary, as it were, traced by the readings which are presented one after the other. I can't help but notice that over the next four weeks, there is a great cloud of witness in the authors of each of the first readings, a kind of family band of prophetic voices standing together and harmoniously affirming each other's words, God's words. This Sunday we hear from Jeremiah, a prophet whose activity spanned the reigns of five of the kings of Judah. Next Sunday it's Baruch, who was actually Jeremiah's scribe. After that we will hear from Zephaniah, who believe it or not, was Jeremiah's mentor. And on the fourth and final Sunday of Advent, we will hear from Micah, who preceded Jeremiah and whom Jeremiah acknowledged in his writings. Then Christmas tide begins. We're approaching one of the most solemn seasons in the Christian life. The church's very core is suspended in a way between the two poles of Christmas and Easter, the mystery of the incarnation, and the mystery of the resurrection. And I think, at least to some degree, the world understands this. It's one reason, I imagine, why even those who identify as non-practicing Christians will place a certain premium on attending an Easter and Christmas mass or service as part of their own festivities. For whatever reason, 
these occasions are seen by a great many people as being worthy of celebration. We really don't know what beautiful faith the supposedly faithless actually have and hold inside them. There is a section towards the end of each of the Eucharistic prayers in the Mass, which I'm reminded of here, a section which commemorates the dead. Eucharistic prayer number four has these beautiful words which always catch me during Mass, and I think they ought to catch us all, quite literally. Remember also, the prayer reads, those who have died in the peace of your Christ. These we can deduce are those who consciously professed a Christian faith and were recognizably intent on bearing witness to that faith through charitable works and a merciful life. But the commemoration doesn't end there. It reaches out to literally catch those outside the walls of recognizable Christianity, who professed no such Christian dignity to be their own, but who hoped and loved, and who are hoped for now and loved still. The prayer continues, And all the dead, whose faith you alone have known, this phrase is repeated many times over. Eucharistic prayer 1 commemorates the living, remembering them before God with these words, All gathered here, whose faith and devotion are known to you. Number 2 reads, All who have died in your mercy, welcome them into the light of your face. Number 3 says, To all who were pleasing to you at their passing from this life, give kind admittance to your kingdom. Who has faith? I know that I cannot peer into another's heart. I can only observe what issues out of it. And even this I see through the murky lens of my own conscience. God alone can see into our innermost selves. And that same God, when asked by the disciples for an increase in faith, told them they needed only a mustard seed. But who has love and who has hope? I think we can all admit that there are a great many people who exhibit real love and real hope, theological virtues which depend on supernatural faith to fuel them. The love which God calls us to exercise needs faith, just as a car needs fuel. My point here being, if they're people of genuine love, that love needs an explanation for its existence. From where does it come? From which mustard seed does it sprout? And whether inside or outside of season, bear such fruit. Even the Grinch cannot ignore Christmas, which gleefully threatens to swell his heart with song, if only for a moment. And sometimes a fleeting moment is enough, a brief occasion where joy comes to fill us up. We might think we're the ones who are joining the party, who are entering the mystery. And indeed we are. But there is one who is quietly joining us, sweetly entering by the narrow passages we leave ajar, that being this mysterious celebratory God of ours. Let's see the readings. This Sunday we will hear from the prophet Jeremiah. 
Some considerable context for Jeremiah and his ministry amidst the people of the southern kingdom is laid out in episode 10 of season 1. This would be worth consulting. But for now, let's say this. Jeremiah's mission was during what was arguably the most turbulent time in the ancient Near East. In between Babylon on their northeast and Egypt below on the west, the kingdoms of Israel and Judah lay vulnerably in the crosshairs of two nations which far exceeded them in power. The land on which all this took place is known to some as the cradle of civilization. And not only Eastern civilization, mind you, but Western civilization as well. Jerusalem, now known as the Fertile Crescent, is that holy land to which God pointed Moses and his successors, a land flowing with milk and honey. This promised land is at the base of a stretch of country across Mesopotamia and down to the Mediterranean coast. Today we would see it including the southeast corner of Turkey, together with Syria, Cyprus, parts of modern-day Egypt, Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, and Israel. In the time of Jeremiah, this land was the envy of every bordering nation, and as they tussled for it, Judah found themselves a vassal to Assyria. In the commotion, the stability that God's people reached for was in a kind of mutually beneficial political deal with this kingdom of the ancient Near East. Thus, God's people were undoubtedly undergoing a severe identity crisis. Who did they understand themselves to be as they were pulled away from the God of their ancestors and into the outstretched arms of a great crowd of obscure gods they had never known? It's to these anonymous Judeans, we might say, that Jeremiah was put to work, calling out the citizens, priests, successive kings, even fellow prophets, and not only these with whom Jeremiah was kin, but also those from the intermingled neighboring nations. Jeremiah was, and is, God's mouthpiece to all. And like every true prophet, Jeremiah was largely ignored, if not persecuted from every side. What an agonizing slog his employment was. What is God's response to salvage such a chaotic scene? It seems the land and its people have been irredeemably shuffled, scrambled at every level, be it ethnicity, culture, religious life, or political concern. It was a tangled ball. All integrity was gone. How does one minister to this? There is a significant turning point come chapter 30 of the prophet Jeremiah. God's promises to recover Israel. The chapter opens with God addressing his prophet. The Lord God of Israel says this, Write for yourself in a book all the words I have spoken to you. For look, the days are coming, the Lord declares, when I shall bring back the captives of my people Israel. And this is inclusive of the kingdom of Judah. The Lord says, I shall make them come back and take possession of the country I gave to their ancestors. While these are heartening words, the hope they provide may seem thin. How will God do this? In a similar way to in the past, 
Will he commission yet again the writing of laws, the building of temples, and so forth? Well, will this really help? When the people had these, they neglected and abused them. Their worship was always prone to hollowness. Their respect of the law was either out of fear, or it was pretentious, just for show, with no fear at all. Their hearts were never fully in it. What good is another temple or stone tablet or stirring proclamation against the messy backdrop that people find themselves in? Wouldn't these simply fall into the mess and get buried, disintegrate and be of no avail? Perhaps as we look at our world today, we can empathize with Israel. We too are surrounded by a great number of forces in tension, tussling for center stage, entangling us in their concerns, which we don't necessarily share, but can gain a sense of stability from. And we too hang as by a thread on the words God has spoken to us, his plans to prosper us and not harm us, to give us a future and a hope. We do trust these words and the love of our God. We know God's integrity is trustworthy, but it is still difficult to negotiate to be at peace about the way things are going, to know when to submit to this or that emerging anxiety, to know how we should navigate the variables without compromising that which is essential to us. Because compromise is virtually impossible to avoid altogether in a world as shuffled up as ours is. To these legitimate concerns of ours and to the seemingly flimsy hope of ancient Israel, God responds. What is it you're going to do, God? Will we see another repeat of history, which is good for a moment, but ultimately doomed for the same historic disintegration, for which we once again are to blame? Will we never escape this futile loop of our own infidelity, which single-handedly damns us? Chapter 31 presents God's reply. No. This is the covenant I shall make with the house of Israel when those days have come, the Lord declares. Within them I shall plant my law, writing it on their hearts. God is well aware of every mess we find ourselves in. But in a sense, he's not so much interested in it. His concern is with us, and in particular, with our hearts. So that is where God administers redemption. Then the text continues, I shall be their God and they will be my people. Finally, we come to this Sunday's first reading, which likewise cuts past the bustling external worlds of Israel and ourselves here and now. Jeremiah's prophecy continues to slip past the innumerable injustices and atrocities that distract his listener, that motley crew. It is a prophecy aimed not at anything in the external world, but rather to the interior life of each to whom God is speaking. The words fly swiftly to that chamber where each spirit is informed and prompted in the first place, that delicate inner sanctum in the core of every human being. See, the days are coming. It is the Lord who speaks. When I am going to fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, 
in those days and at that time, I will make a virtuous branch grow for David, who shall practice honesty and integrity in the land. In those days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell in confidence. And this is the name the city will be called, the Lord our integrity. Notice all that's being said here, and how deep God desires his redemption to go. He's not merely interested in cleaning up some of the mess. The messy exterior that people are struggling with is indicative of a messed up interior life and apparent disintegration. This disintegrity has plagued the human heart from the beginning and continues to do so in various ways. The human person is that creature with insatiable curiosity about the world and about ourselves. We have within us this unique capacity amongst other created things to pursue interests of every kind, to involve ourselves in a dizzying number of tasks, to be plugged into an ever-expanding web of networks and occupy ourselves with innumerable projects, each boasting its own complexity. Surely it is a gift to have this capacity. No other creature in the world seems to do this, to let its imagination run wild as it puts its hand to every plough in its vicinity and tries at the same time to maintain something of a bird's eye view over the whole thing. Is there any other creature who concerns itself with the world at large, with ancient history and the distant future, with the leaving of legacies and the tearing down of others' empires? No. Only humanity seems to have this very over-the-top capacity. We seem to think there is nothing we can't do, and so we try to do everything. But we struggle to devote ourselves to one thing. We seem unable to tame and integrate this power. I suppose if we could withdraw ourselves from the endless cycles that move us, the perpetually whirling machines pressing on society and straining our minds, every man, woman and even child could confess a longing that they know for peace and harmony, for quiet simplicity. That longing whispers from the innermost centre of who we are, but is easily swamped by everything we've just mentioned. Drowned out as it may be for us, it is a persistent whisper. It doesn't stop, and nor is it in vain, for it is also perpetually heard. And the one who hears it cuts past the rapturous noise and activity as one slips through a dense, bustling crowd. With the urgency of one moving to jump aboard a train ready to depart, he speeds through every available crevice until he comes to that place which craves the simple, gentle, consoling peace that cannot be found in the world, and he pours it into us, nurses us with great compassion, and we, like infants at the breast, drink deeply of this peace and are at once satisfied, like we always hoped we could be. What is this which God gives to his people in fulfillment of his promise? What is this apparent milk and honey which reforms and purifies that stock of Jesse that saw David fall into infidelity and Solomon and the rest after him? What quenches the smouldering waywardness always somewhere aglow in this line of kings? 
what would gather in and bind up their disintegrity? Can a virtuous branch really grow from something which has become corrupt or has been ravished by beasts and passers-by alike? Can such a crop become healthy again and bear good fruit in abundance? God says yes. Virtue, honesty, confidence, integrity. This God will give his people to enjoy. He will make it grow from within. The integrity they will have will come from within, but it will not be generated by them because evidently they can't do it. Not on their own. Rather, it will grow in them as a child in the womb, as an other that they are to nurture. In doing so, they will raise up a newness in themselves which will glorify them and their God once again. In fact, by receiving this gift from God, they will effectively cradle all of human civilization again. For God desires that all he has to give would be enjoyed not just by the people of Israel and Judah, but that through them, the whole world would come to know it. If this is something we desire, something we might be whispering in our innermost depth, albeit unbeknownst to us, this Sunday's gospel encourages us to take a stand. We are called to stop even as the heavens and earth quake, to look and confidently hold strong, fixing our gaze in the direction from where shall come that peace and integrity which is both our deepest desire and God's surest promise. If our eyes are shifting between the many things that draw our attention, we risk missing it. If our footing gets lost in the clamor of the ocean and its waves, we risk being swept away. If our hearts are too coarsened by the cares of this passing world with its vanity and cheap consolations, we might find ourselves clenching our teeth and pursing our lips against that promised milk and honey, which is the wisdom and joy and love and peace and grace of God, which he comes lavishly pouring. What are our mouths open to if they are closed to this? We must be sleeping. We must be dreaming. We must be weaker than we thought even as we refuse to let the weight of the whole world off our shoulders. And so the Lord begs us to come free from the traps we've laid for ourselves. Stay awake, he says, praying at all times for the strength. Above all, to stand with confidence before the Son of Man. He himself is the integrity needed to stand to keep watch, to wait on him. We need not worry for fatigue. We won't be waiting indefinitely. In fact, it is very near at hand, for he is seen coming on the clouds. With our eyes raised then, we take as our refrain for this week, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. May the promised integrity of God be seen at work throughout this Advent season in us, in our families, 
in our social and professional circles, in our communities, and even across the nation and the world. May it draw us, each and all, together into the heart of him who is the integrity of God, our dear Jesus. May we see him and each other in the Eucharist this Sunday. Take care and God bless.